Good afternoon, uh, ladies and gentlemen. I'm Robert George. I'm the director of the James Madison Program in American Ideals and Institutions. And I'm delighted uh, to be um, uh, able to welcome uh, to our campus Abigail Thernstrom, uh, who will be speaking this afternoon in uh, the Madison Program's series of lectures on America's founding and future. Dr. Thernstrom is a senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute in New York, a member of the Massachusetts State Board of Education, and a commissioner on the United States Commission on Civil Rights, on which I uh, myself had the honor to serve from 1993 to 1998. Unfortunately, I did not have the honor to serve with uh, uh, Abigail Thernstrom. She uh, came after me. Dr. Thernstrom received her PhD from the Department of Government at Harvard University in 1975. She and her husband, Harvard historian uh, Stephen Thernstrom, are the co-authors of No Excuses, Closing the Racial Gap in Learning, which was published uh, to great fanfare by Simon & Schuster in October of 2003 and was named by the uh, Los Angeles Times and the American School Board Journal as one of the best books of that year. They also collaborated uh, on America in Black and White, One Nation uh, Indivisible, which the New York Times Book Review in its annual end-of-the-year issue named as one of the most notable books of 1997. They are the editors of Beyond the Color Line, New Perspectives in Race and Ethnicity, and their lengthy review of William Bowen and Derek Bach's much-noticed work, The Shape of the River, appeared in the June 1999 issue of the UCLA Law Review. And that's a review that I would very much commend uh, to all of you who are interested in the topic uh, of affirmative action and racial preferences. The 1987 work, uh, Whose, Vote Count, Whose Votes Count, Affirmative Action and Minority Voting Rights, was published uh, by Harvard uh, University Press and won four awards, including the American Bar Association Certificate of Merit and the Ainsfield Wolf, Wolf Prize for the best book on race and ethnicity. It was named the best public policy studies book of that year by the Policy Studies Organization and affiliated with the American Political Science Association and won the Benchmark uh, Book Award from the Center for uh, Judicial Studies. Abigail Thernstrom's uh, frequent media appearances have included Fox News Sunday and Good Morning America this week. Uh, and this week with George Stephanopoulos. For some years, she was a stringer for The Economist and continues to write frequently for a variety of journals and newspapers, including The New Republic, The Wall Street Journal, uh, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and The Public Interest. She serves on several boards, the Center for Equal Opportunity, the Education Leaders Council, and the Institute for Justice, among others. From 1992 to 97, she was a member of the Aspen Institute's Domestic Strategy Group. It's a real pleasure uh, to welcome Abigail Thernstrom uh, here today to speak on the racial gap uh, in academic achievement. Abigail Thernstrom. You think this is the right height for me? What? Okay. Being short is always a problem. Well, I am delighted and honored to be here, and as Robert George said, he preceded me on the U.S. Commission on Civil Rights, I've decided we have something very important in common. We have a streak of masochism <laughs> in common because only a masochist would, start, would agree to be appointed to that um, commission. I'm not talking about the commission today, obviously, though. Um, I am going to talk about three intertwined subjects, Brown versus Board of Education 50 years later, Supreme Court decisions in the University of Michigan affirmative action cases, and the racial gap in learning 
not between whites and minorities, as it is often carelessly said, but between whites and Asians on the one hand, blacks and Hispanics on the other hand. All three involve the question of equal educational opportunity. The Brown decision, as brief and frustrating as it was, and it was, did mark the opening of a new era in American history. But it also stirred great and unfulfilled expectations of a truly level playing field in education, in learning. Today, a half century later, from kindergarten to college and beyond, this struggle to define and realize equal educational opportunity continues. And that's the struggle that I wanted to discuss today. Five decades have passed, and much of the writing on Brown versus Board is not very celebratory. So much hope, so much disappointment is the frequently heard complaint. Big promises, small results. A half century gone by, and we've moved from segregation to resegregation, it is said. Thus, Paul Vallis, Philadelphia's education chief, believes, and I quote, we're still wrestling with the same issues as we did in 1954. In his new book, Harvard Law Professor Charles Ogletree has argued that, quote, the evil that Brown sought to eliminate segregation is still with us, although Ogletree does acknowledge some progress. His verdict is also that of Washington Post columnist Colbert King, who wrote at the end of February, segregation has found its way back, if indeed it ever left some schools. To be sure, today's racial separation is not sanctioned by law, he went on, but in terms of racial isolation, the effect is much the same and with the same consequence. Such voices of pessimism are a staple of contemporary commentary on the 1954 decision. This assessment is heavily influenced by the work of Professor Gary Orfield at the Harvard Civil Rights Project. And it is not only depressing, it's wrong. Brown remains a luminous moment in American history. It was the beginning of the end of segregation in the Jim Crow South, and that regime will never come back. In 1954, segregated schools were integral to a caste system designed to remind blacks in a myriad of ways that they were inferior. One-race schools, separate water fountains, whites-only libraries, restricted seating and buses, Adult blacks never dressed as Mr. or Mrs. That taboo on interracial handshakes. How can Superintendent Vallis and so many others so minimize the difference between today and the long era of intricate state-sanctioned state arrangements 
that exalted the position of whites and rendered unmistakable the subordinate status of blacks. In the court's unanimous opinion in Brown, Chief Justice Earl Warren noted that to separate black children from others of similar age and qualifications solely because of their race generates a feeling of inferiority as to their status in the community that may affect their hearts and minds in a way unlikely ever to be undone, famous words. The specific issue at hand was the segregation of, of, in public schools, obviously, but the point was one that encompassed the entire regime of American apartheid. Hence the domino effect, the rapid impact of Brown on other spheres of public life. The court's reasoning extended to segregation in general. The whole point of legally enforced separation, whether on trains or in schools, was to convey a permanent sense of racial inferiority. And Brown said, in effect, racial inferiority is an idea whose time is up. Although, of course, the justices had no magic wand with which to eliminate racism. But the message itself from the high court was important. An overwhelmingly black school in Detroit today, while certainly not the stuff of interracial dreams, is not one cog in an intricate and inescapable machine devoted to maintaining white supremacy. Today, obviously, no American child attends a school that is legally restricted to students of the same race. No state laws send a message, as Justice Harlan put it, dissenting in Plessy, that African Americans are so inferior and degraded that they cannot be allowed to sit with whites. A school in Detroit with very few whites is not, quote unquote, segregated. It simply reflects the demographic reality that the student population in that city is under 4% white and 91% black. Detroit is an extreme example of black urban concentration. The typical black youngster across the nation today attends a school that is roughly 54% black, 31% white, 11% Latino, and 3% Asian. So black students, on average, are attending schools that are about half black, a big contrast with the pre-Brown days. Even 10 years after Brown in the 11 ex-Confederate states, just over 1% of black public school children attended a school in which any black students sat. That world is gone. But in any case, today's majority-minority schools, which are so widespread in America's central cities, are not segregated, as the Supreme Court has consistently recognized in its refusal to confuse state-sanctioned segregation with demographically-driven concentrations of black students. 
demographic, or minority students, I should say, demographic reality means that many schools will be predominantly minority today and in the coming years. Only about a third of California's pupils are white, and whites are a minority of students in Louisiana, Mississippi, New Mexico, and Texas. By the end of the decade, Arizona, Florida, Nevada, and New York are likely to join that list. About a third of American public school students are in states in which a minority in which, I'm sorry, in which minority kids are in the majority, or soon will be. Cities, too, have changed. Whites are down to an average of 16% in the large central city districts. Districts the size of Boston and larger, about 60,000. Thus, in San Francisco, for instance, public school enrollment is currently only 11% white, while 51% of the students are Asian. But should we label a majority Asian school with few whites segregated, with the implication that learning is likely to be compromised? Given the record of Asian academic achievement, the assertion makes absolutely no sense. Moreover, isn't the diversity of a school that is a rich Asian, black, and Hispanic mix, as many schools throughout California are today, isn't that a civil rights dream come true? Of course, there are districts like Detroit. Again, however, the problem is not segregation, but the fact that over 90% of the city's school population is black. To confuse majority-minority schools with segregation is to suggest a persistent problem that can be fixed if only there's the will to do so. In fact, of course, school districts cannot alter the demographic mix that results in majority-minority schools. But it's important to note, happily, that there is only the most limited evidence that the racial composition of schools matters in or determines academic outcomes. I certainly believe that less racial clustering in the schools would be good for the fabric of American society. I do not like the racial isolation of black students in Detroit or DC, for instance. But I don't believe that the racial identity of a school inevitably determines the quality of education. And indeed, to assume otherwise is to suggest, as Justice Clarence Thomas said in Missouri versus Jenkins, that anything that is predominantly black must be inferior. Across this country, there are superb schools that no whites attend. There aren't enough of them, but they exist, and they're a model of what urban education can look like. Brown thus delivered on its most important promise. Down a long, hard road, state-sanctioned segregation came to an end. As Harvard Law Professor Randall Kennedy has, noticed, has noted, when southern states 
demanded that the races be kept separate. In effect, they hurled a racial insult at blacks. That is not the case when a school is predominantly or all black or predominantly or all black, Hispanic, and Asian, simply because few or no whites live in the neighborhood. Brown closed the long era of state-sanctioned racial insults. But the court in Brown seemed to promise something more. It included one sentence that referred to educational opportunity available to all on equal terms. That's quoting from Brown. And while available in the context, surely referred only to schoolhouse doors open to both whites and blacks, the reference to equal opportunity raised expectations that have remained tragically unfulfilled. Here goes my book. It's all right. It's all right, leave it. Today, the typical black or Latino student is graduating from high school with an eighth grade education, a picture that is actually worse than it was in the late 80s. America in so many ways is a land of opportunity, but not for those without skills and knowledge. Actual skills and knowledge, not education as measured in the usual way by years spent warming a seat in school. And if schools cannot close the racial gap in actual learning, the old inequalities, the familiar inequalities will persist. Not to worry, Justice Sandra Day O'Connor has said, writing for the court in Grutter versus Bollinger, last June's decision, sanctioning racial preferences in the University of Michigan Law School. In the last 25 years, O'Connor claimed, quote, the number of minority applicants with high grades and test scores has indeed increased. There's every reason to believe that in another quarter of a century, the racial gap in academic achievement in the K through 12 years will be closed, she suggested. The pool of academically high-performing black and Hispanic applicants will have so grown as to make race-conscious admissions the strategy of a bygone era. The court expects that 25 years from now, the use of racial preferences will no longer be necessary, she declared. 1978, 25, just over 25 years ago, Justice Blackman in the University of California versus Bakke famously said that in order to treat some people equally, we must treat them differently. And in effect, O'Connor was reiterating the Blackman principle. The acid test, she called it the acid test, of the efficacy of preferences was their ability to eliminate any further need for them. She wrote, skirting the sticky question of why racial preferences in college and university admissions in the decades since Bakke had not already eliminated their further need. Equal protection, she argued, demands 
unequal protection, but not forever. Quote, race-conscious admission policies must be limited in time, she said. They are potentially dangerous and, as the law school admits, must have reasonable durational limits. In other words, preferences are constitutionally legitimate only if temporary. They must have what she called a termination point. O'Connor's definition of temporary amounted to more than half a century, since she was proposing an additional 25 years on top of the roughly 35 years since, the, since institutions of higher education first started to use racial preferences in admissions. Altogether, I don't know how many of you have read it, but O'Connor's opinion for the court in Grutter was an utter mess. I've come, to, I've come to believe no one should ever count on the Supreme Court to think or to write clearly, or even to tell the whole truth and nothing but. But its decisions involving race are particularly frustrating, and O'Connor's attempt at reassurance was typical of the careless, disingenuous pronouncements that litter the history of writing on the court and off on racial double standards. The court in Grutter suggested that preferences were simply temporary medicine for a problem, the racial gap in academic achievement, that was already curing itself. In fact, there was no empirical basis for O'Connor's faith, faith that black and Hispanic students would typically have the same academic profile as the average white or Asian youngster by the year 2028. O'Connor was either scandalously ignorant of the real record or deliberately and irresponsibly deceptive. The best data on what American youngsters know at the end of high school when they're ready to apply to schools like Princeton, selective colleges, comes from the tests administered to random samples of students by the congressionally mandated and federally administered National Assessment of Educational Progress, known as NAEP. Before I run through some of the NAEP numbers, a preliminary note. This is not an IQ story. It's a story of kids who need to acquire skills and knowledge, but who have been tragically and needlessly left behind. Now, here's a brief look at some of the numbers. At age 17, typical black or Hispanic student scoring less well on the NAEP assessments than at least 80% of his or her white or Asian classmates. On average, as I've already mentioned, these non-Asian minority students are four years behind those who are white and Asian. They are finishing high school with a junior high school education. So the typical employer hiring, the employer hiring the typical black high school graduate of the college that admits the average black student is in effect choosing a youngster who again has only made it through eighth grade. Here's another way of judging the magnitude of the gap. In five of the seven subjects tested by NAEP, a majority of black students perform in the lowest category, that is what's called below basic. 
That means a majority of black students do not even have a partial mastery of the fundamental knowledge and skills expected of students in the 12th grade, and the Hispanics are only doing a tad better. News is no happier when we switch our gaze from the bottom to those who are at the top. Let's take math and math. Only 0.2% of black students fall in NAEP's advanced category. 0.2%. Figure for whites is 11 times higher. The figure for Asians is 37 times higher. And again, Hispanic students are only slightly ahead of blacks. So few black and blacks and Hispanics with superb academic skills by the end of high school. The pool of those ready to do the work at selective demanding colleges and likely to become part of the American professional and business elite is inevitably very small. Black students were, of course, even further behind three decades ago when NAEP data first became available. But the modest progress since then, well, the modest progress that occurred through much, uh, sorry, the modest progress that occurred through much of the 1980s has largely come to an end. And there are some indications that the racial gap has widened. Thus, Current trends offer no grounds for, com for complacency, for the irresponsible complacency contained in O'Connor's opinion in Grutter. In fact, in the history of judicial decisions involving racial preferences in education and other spheres, O'Connor's attempt at reassurance, just 25 years more, folks, is arguably the low point in a shocking record of transparently absurd arguments. Ignoring widely available facts, she painted a rosy landscape when the truth is close to catastrophic. It is criminal to offer complacent optimism about the racial gap in, in academic achievement. Her majority opinion is a cover-up. That racial gap is the most single important source of racial inequality in America today. Those who care about that inequality will not engage in such duplicity. Instead, they will say loud and clear, America must get its education act together. A racially identifiable group of educational have-nots is morally unacceptable. This is a problem that can be fixed. It will not be fixed quickly or easily, however. For one thing, most of the conventional remedies have not worked and will not work. The record suggests per-pupil spending in public education has doubled over the last three decades. Kids have been bused for racial integration, and the main impact has been an exodus of middle-class families affected by busing orders. Title I and Head Start were supposed to level the playing field and have had no discernible impact on learning. Public schools have been deluged with one educational fad after another, the new, new math, whole language instruction, small group learning, and so forth. These fads have not closed the racial gap in academic achievement. In, the, in fact, as I've said, the gap has widened since the late 80s in reading, math, and science. Although that is not to say that a better curriculum would not make a difference, it would. But it's only part of the picture. 
Both black and Hispanic students are typically doing poorly in school, but it is African-American kids who are of most concern for two reasons. One, because of the history of American apartheid. But two, because Hispanics are really an immigrant group, and the evidence suggests that over the generations, their educational performance improves with a picture much like that of Italians around 1910, who also came to this country without a tradition of viewing education as the ticket to economic and social mobility. Are there, quote, quote unquote, root causes to which we can point to explain satisfactorily the low academic performance of the typical black youngster? Not really. We can talk about a long history of enforced separation from the world of learning under slavery and in subsequent decades when the school's African-American children attended were segregated and inferior and when high-prestige jobs were rarely open, even to high-skilled blacks. We can also point to some of the risk factors that seem to be limiting the intellectual growth of black students, among them low birth weight, single-parent households, birth to a very young mother. African-American children not only arrive in kindergarten less academically prepared, they tend also to be less ready to conform to behavioral demands. At a conference a couple of years ago, a distinguished educator said to me, why talk about race when social class is the real issue? We wish, that is, my husband and I wish that that were true. Of course, parental education, income, place of residence, they all make a difference in school achievement. But they account for only about a third of the gap. And in part, we argue in no excuses that group cultural differences explain the remaining two-thirds. Meeting the demands of school is harder for members of some racial and ethnic groups than for others. Some group cultures are more academically advantageous than others, a point that everybody knows and few are willing to discuss. Black children, for instance, watch an extraordinary amount of television, essential to belonging to their peer culture, they say. Nearly half of African-American fourth graders spend five hours or more staring at a TV screen on a typical school day, about as much time as they spend in their classes at school. Add in weekend viewing, and their main education occurs in front of the television set. Less than one-fifth of whites spend that many hours watching TV, and Hispanic ch children are more like whites than blacks in this respect. By eighth grade, close to half of all black children watch television for w what must be more than a third of their waking hours on school days. And in the 12th grade, nearly one-third of all African-American children were still staring at the television. By 12th grade, you would assume they have a lot of homework. We're still staring at the television for five hours or more. Five times the proportion among whites and more than double that for Latinos. Few racial differences in contemporary America are as sharp as these. Asian parents typically expect their children to work extraordinarily hard in school, and most remarkably, the children do so. 
cutting classes less often than their peers, enrolling in AP courses at triple the white rate, spending twice as much time on homework as their non-Asian classmates. As a result, on some math tests, the white-Asian gap is actually larger than the black-white gap. But hard work is obviously a culturally transferable skill, and schools can play an invaluable part in shaping the values, the habits, the skills that we call culture. The process of connecting the typical black child to the world of academic achievement isn't easy in the best of educational settings. But good schools show that it can be done. Terrific schools. Kip Academy in the Bronx, South Bronx, is my favorite school. They provide a roadmap to academic success. My husband and I describe a number of them in detail in two chapters in No Excuses. Best inner-city schools have greatly extended instructional time with more hours in the day, longer weeks, and longer years. They have terrific principals who have the authority and autonomy to manage their budgets, set salaries, staff the school with fabulous teachers, and get rid of those who don't work out. These schools focus relentlessly on the core academic subjects, insisting that their students learn the times table, basic historical facts, spelling, punctuation, the rules of grammar, and the meaning of often unfamiliar words. They provide safe and orderly environments in which to teach and learn. But they also aim to transform the culture of their students as that culture affects academic achievement. Are we conservative here? Gregory Hodge, the head of the Frederick Douglass Academy in New York's Harlem, once asked me rhetorically and then answered himself, of course we are. We teach middle-class values like responsibility. The KIPP Academy's David Levin has echoed Hodge. He, quote, we are fighting a battle involving skills and values. We are not afraid to set social norms, he has said. The best schools work hard to instill the desire, discipline, and dedication, those are KIPP watchwords, that will enable disadvantaged youth to climb the American ladder of opportunity. Figuring out what great schools look like really is not difficult, but how to get there on a massive scale, that's the question to which no one has a good answer. Given the structure of public education, with its built-in obstacles to the sort of fundamental reform that will be needed. In a long chapter in No Excuses, we describe those daunting obstacles which include the collective bargaining agreements that govern almost all aspects of a school day in many states. Will the mandatory testing and other aspects of No Child Left Behind help? We believe they will, but we see them as necessary, not sufficient. The longer we worked on No Excuses, the more radical our voices became. The mind-numbing data on the racial gap in academic achievement should make all Americans furious, and it should radicalize the debate over educational reform. The alternative to a radical overhaul of American education is too many black and Hispanic youngsters continuing to leave high school without the skills and knowledge to do well in life. 
doors closed to too many non-Asian minorities, the perpetuation of ancient inequalities. Is that acceptable? No decent American will say yes. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dr. Thernstrom. Uh, well, now we're going to open the floor for uh, questions. You want to put your, your book yeah. up there? Uh, and our custom and practice in the Madison program is to begin with a period uh, of questions from students, uh, undergraduates, graduate students, any high school students who happen to be with us. And, and you needn't be Princeton students. I know we have some visitors from some other institutions. So uh, students, the floor is yours. And by the way, I can't see you because I've got reading glasses on, so you forgive me if I don't even know if you're male or female. I'll, I will know when, you got, when I hear your voice. I'll point. <laughs> none, none of our students have quite that. Yes, uh, Frank. Uh, Dr. Thurston, in your book, you talk about the culture of Yeah, well, it's obviously an excellent question. There is a self-selection bias, clearly, because the school, the schools that in the schools we describe, because they're all um, charter schools. The only exception is one fifth grade class in a huge and awful elementary school in central LA where there are 12 fifth grades and this um, one fifth grade is really a school within the larger school and it's the only little corner of that lousy public school where the kids are are doing wonderfully. But the rest of the schools we describe indeed are charter schools and therefore even though they have uh, an enormous number of applicants, and they do choose the students um, randomly. There is a lottery. There is a self-selection bias. The, the parents have to have been interested enough to have applied. Here's the answer I would give to that. It's twofold. One, the principals of all those schools and many principals of regular district schools to whom I talk all agree that choice on the part not only of the students and their parents, but also on the part of the teachers, is absolutely essential to good education. That there has to be a match between the culture of the school and what and the environment and and what the kids, the particular children who are at that school. Um, want and need, and that kids need to sort themselves, and families need to sort themselves out uh, on the basis of what makes sense for them educationally. How can that be done? Turn every urban school into a charter school uh, with a condition. You're closed if you don't educate the kids. Um, as Professor George said, I'm on the State Board of Education in Massachusetts. We're having a huge battle in Massachusetts over charter schools. 
um, because the regular public schools are threatened by them. Um, but no regular public school is ever closed when it doesn't educate kids. In fact, it just gets more money. Turn urban schools into charter schools. I'm also a believer in vouchers, by the way. Let the kids out of schools that are failing them. But in any case, close schools that aren't functioning. So I think you can do it. But it will take, as I said before, a radical overhaul. I don't think any teacher should be in a school. Um, well, first place, I believe principals should be defining the culture of a school and should be instructional leaders instead of what I see all the time, which is a principal locked behind, locked in his or her um, office, um, shoving papers around, never going into the classrooms, letting new teachers flounder, letting old teachers who are, who are burned out get away with running videos, whatever, with chaos in the classrooms and kids screaming and running down the halls and eating in class and wandering in and out and so forth, and where's the principal? But, I mean, a principal should set the culture of a school and that principals and the teachers need to choose to be at that school because not all cultures are right for all teachers. A teacher can be very good, but not for a particular school. So, you know, and and as part of that package, not only should schools be, be closed when the kids aren't learning, the teachers should be fired when they're not teaching. The, the fifth grade I describe, and then I'm going to stop um, answering this question. The fifth grade I descri describe at the Hobart Elementary School in central L.A. I, one day I wandered to the fifth grade next door, and I said, uh, and the teacher said to me, um, so you've been in Ray Fesquith's class? And I said, yeah. He said, quite something, isn't it? And I said, quite something. And he's, I said, but, you know, it really isn't that hard to do what he does. And the teacher said, nah, <laughs> not interested. And his, his class, which I'd hung around, was a disaster. Nothing was going on educationally. Another question. Yeah, uh, uh, yes, uh, David Robinson.
Right yeah. No, that's, uh, I'm going to stop saying this is an excellent question because they're all obviously going to be great questions. But it's, uh, it is um, it is a, a terrific um, question. Look, I think if you accept public money uh, as a voucher school, as a charter school, whatever, that along with the accepting acceptance of public money has to come and adherence to standards. That is, I have no problem in saying to a school that accepts students uh, with a voucher, for instance, um, you pick the teaching, you pick your pedagogy, uh, you choose how students are going to learn, but the students better be learning. Um, and at the end of the day, they have to, in order to get a high school diploma, they have to meet state standards. Um, because it isn't acceptable to me to have, um, you know, junk education. Um, and so I think one can reduce that tension. I think at the point at which, but I don't know. I mean, in Massachusetts, for instance, we have we're going towards um, standards that are uh, year by year. But all that, all those standards, those standards are very general. Um, I mean, we're hoping that what the math standards, um, with the math standards that are being put in place, that most students will end up doing algebra by eighth grade. But that doesn't really script the day-to-day -day life of a classroom. Um, so I'm both for choice, both for sorting out process that goes with that choice, but also for standards. And exactly how we work out the balance is going to differ from state to state, from district to district. But at the end of the day, the kids have to have to learn. Kurt, I, I didn't know. Did you have a follow-up question to your first question? I, were you trying to get back in? I know. Was your, I okay. Yes. Uh, yes, you, sir. It's just a, a typical as a as a uh, it's a synonym for average, a statistical average, um, and I'm all of our data rests on uh, on NAEP, the National Assessment for Educational Progress. If you get on uh, NAEP's website, it um, it has a wonderful tool. I'm not the number cruncher in our family. My husband is, but nevertheless. Um, I, I know what he does. Um, has a wonderful tool that so that you can put in um, looks at you look at scores. You can you can put in a, a bunch of variables. I mean, income is uh, uh, very crudely measured by eligibility for uh, federal free or reduced lunch program. That is a really crude income because obviously students do not fill out uh, on the assessment what they're, they don't know and they don't 
can't possibly fill out what their family income is. But anyway, you can put in a bunch of variables. Typical simply means statistically average. Now, I'm not sure what lies behind your, your question, but I had an interesting experience. I was talking in an almost entirely um, black high school in Boston the other day, and um, it was a charter school. Um, and um, it's a wonderful high school. And um, after I, you know, I had a class time to myself. Um, and after I made some opening remarks, a bunch of hands went up. Well, as I said, all black students. And they all had the same question. Why do I count in the NAEP data? Because I am an immigrant. Um, I had a sea of African-American immigrants from Jamaica, from Africa, from whatever, in front of me at this charter school. Um, and these were kids who immigrant parents generally have uh, educational stars in their eyes and have a level of optimism that a lot of black parents who have been ground down in American society over the generations do not, no longer have. But... Um, in any case, the answer to, her, to these students was very clear. I'd love to be able to separate out that, those data. I can't do so. It, Nate doesn't ask country of origin. I'm not sure what, what lay behind. You had behind your question something else. Do you want to follow up? Or? Uh, uh, yeah, is it broken down that way? Yeah. The, um, well, yeah, I mean, there's different NAEP. There's state NAEP, which hasn't been mandatory. It's been voluntary until now. Under With the new federal legislation, it's going to be mandatory in every state. So you can get it broken down by states. And by the way, one of, and, and now NAEP is doing some trial. Uh, urban district testing so that for the first time we can compare uh, one district against another. And very interestingly, some districts, some urban districts are doing better than others, which is, is, um, is heartening and actually a, modifies somewhat my pessimism about the degree to which um, the scores can go up without the kind of sweeping change um, that um, that we argue for and no excuses, but there's and there's the national uh, NAEP data and um, the kid, the students self-identify themselves. What you know, they check off black, Latino, or Hispanic, whatever they've got on NAEP. Maybe they've got both, as you know. They may have black slash African American. Latino, I I can't even remember. Um, white, Asian, okay? So this is self-identification on the part of the students, and a certain number of students don't check any box, but it's a small number, and you play with the data, with the NAEP data tool. Only I don't do it. My husband does. 
But if I, if so, I can just follow, if I catch the thrust of my question this, myself, uh, this question myself, if you broke it down, uh, the, with the gap between urban blacks and, say, suburban whites, be substantially different from the black between rural blacks and rural whites? Or would the gap be less between rural blacks and rural right, whites? Or do we just not know because the data aren't there? No, we know. I think this is what you're asking. We know that suburban students, third, third of blacks are, live in suburbs today. Everybody thinks of blacks as, as caught in central cities. Third of blacks live in students, approximately half are middle class. Big change since Brown, another one of those big changes since Brown. Um, we know that in the suburbs, black students, are doing better than black students in, in central cities. Yes, but, big but after that, the racial gap is still huge. And the, because all boats are lifted in the suburbs, the white students are doing better, the Asian students are doing better, black students are doing better, Hispanics are student doing better, everybody's up, but the gap is still horrific. Same for rural, say southern rural blacks? Southern rural blacks, I don't have the data on. Maybe Steve did or does. Uh, unfortunately, he's not here. But I think um, southern rural, what rest would you know? Yeah, there's going to be a gap any place, whether it's, uh, I mean, I would think rural south look very much like ur the urban picture. Um, well, I was about to say, Shaker Heights of the suburbs is the studied community, very wealthy suburb of Cleveland, and, I mean, they've been pouring money into education. They've had tutoring. They've had mentoring. They've had you name it. And the gap is horrendous. They have got um, the percentage of African-American students who are getting, I think it's called honors or whatever, on the uh, statewide tests in Shaker Heights is the same as it is uh, for blacks statewide. Um, I mean, that, that's a, the picture in Shaker Heights is just awful, and there are, and it's true of, name your suburb, um, and there are, there's a whole project looking into this. Uh, it's an extremely interesting, the, the why question there is extremely interesting and, and unanswered. And I, I do think it's a separate problem. Uh, and we can't get our arms around it yet. Or we haven't been able to get our arms around it yet. More student questions? Yes, ma'am. People hear the question, charter schools? Oh, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a question about charter schools. Um, wh what, do, what does the performance look like in the ones that we talk about and no excuses, and also why such resistance to the charter school movement? Let me just say one more word on Shaker Heights, by the way, that I should have said. Um, a, 
man by the name of John Ogbu, who has recently, unfortunately, um, died, um, African immigrant. Um, Princeton graduate. Princeton graduate, right. I had forgotten that. Um, uh, was asked by the black parents to come to Shaker Heights and try to figure out what was going on. And his answer was very much what we talk about, um, that is culture. Kids weren't, were watching too much television, they weren't studying hard enough, um, and, and so forth. He, and when his book came out, I thought, oh no, because ours was about four months away from coming out, something like that, and I thought he's, I thought, you know, that it takes away from the freshness of my story, but actually he ran interference for us because he, um, um, because he laid the groundwork um, for for us, and we've gotten almost no flack on the on the the culture argument. Um, look, first place on charter schools, there is a huge spectrum across the country in the quality of charter schools, um, and there are states that that have charter school laws where there are. Arizona is prime example where there are a lot of charter schools and a lot of them aren't very good and they're not closing them as they should. Um, the ones we talk about have unbelievable results. Um, the Kip Academy in the South Bronx, again, is my favorite. It happens to be my favorite one in part because I've spent so much time there. There's a wonderful charter school in Newark called North Star that we talk, also talk about. Um, uh, Kip Academy in the South Bronx, I haven't got its most recent numbers, which I believe are even better than the ones I'm about to recite to you, but it's a middle school, so kids come in only in fifth grade. A uh, huge percentage of them don't even read uh, when they come in in fifth grade. It has... Last I knew, it had the highest scores in math in all of the Bronx, second highest in all of New York City for a middle school, uh, and the reading scores were basically, uh, were almost as good. Um, I mean, and when you go there, you see why. They're teaching the kids. I mean, when people say, <laughs> when people say to me, well, what should we do? And I say, teach the kids. <laughs> they say, they, they're just, there's this horrible silence afterwards. But the fact is that in too many schools, too many schools are basically an adult employment system. They're not teaching the kids. And why the resistance? Because they're an adult employment system. And a charter school gets rid of teachers. Teachers have normally have tenure after two or three years. And it doesn't take much to get tenure, and especially as we're short on teachers. I mean, the whole system of um, the whole structure of the teaching profession, which is not really a profession. What other professionals are unionized? I mean, are doctors unionized? Lawyers unionized? No. I mean, one of the definitions of a profession is it's not unionized. But in any case, I mean, the whole structure of the teaching profession, where after a couple of years of managing not to whatever, you know, uh, um, 
do something absolutely outrageous. Uh, you get tenure, and then um, nobody's going to, you know, you're really free to do what you want. Nobody's going to give you a higher salary for doing a really good job. The only Your salary goes up with endurance and uh, education uh, courses, Mickey Mouse education courses very often, I mean, junk courses. Um, a lot of our, a lot of our math teachers, a lot of elementary school teachers who are teaching math don't know any math. They've never had a math course. They've had a math education course. That is not a math course. And in fact, one of the good, um, websites to get onto if you're interested in, um, academic achievement, uh, is Education Trust's website. Um, which is uh, dedicated to promoting standards and uh, accountability, and it's got a very good reputation in part because it's Katie Haycock who runs it is politically very left, and so uh, she's she's kind of crossing the political uh, spectrum. But Education Trust, when it counts um, teachers teaching out of field, which is one of the questions that are. Uh, um, is a matter that deeply concerns Haycock. It counts as math teachers, teachers who have math ed degrees. As far as I'm concerned, a math ed degree does not count uh, as having an education in math. I've got a friend trying to teach elementary uh, school teachers, existing elementary school teachers, people in the schools and with tenure, uh, how to teach arithmetic. These teachers don't know any arithmetic. They never understood arithmetic. The whole profession is structured to um, discourage the academically skilled, entrepreneurial, um, young um, person who really wants to make a difference in kids' lives, wants to build a better mousetrap, whatever. They go elsewhere. They don't become, you know, a civil servant where the rewards are zero for doing a good job. Yeah. Okay, other students? Y yes, you, ma'am. Well, we have enough on the funding question. We have a long chapter called Send Money. Um, and, I mean, the problem is I'm happy to throw money at problems if money will fix them. But the problem is we've been throwing a lot of money at public schools and student performance hasn't gone up. 
uh, as I said, per pupil funding has doubled in the last three decades. Uh, student performance is is flat. You look at places like Washington, D.C., uh, over $15,000 per student, one of the worst districts in the nation. Um, closer to my home, Cambridge, Massachusetts, seventeen five per student. Cambridge is falling on its face uh, in terms of student learning. Um, if money is used well, can money make a difference? Sure, I believe it can. But money thrown at into the existing structure of public education, no. And that 15000 in Washington, D.C., what could families do in terms of buying decent education if, they, if that money was strapped to the kids' backs and they could choose their own schools? That's a lot of money. I don't think funding is the basic problem. I think what's done with the money, I think there is sufficient money in public education today. There is no longer the gross inequalities. I mean, even the Council for Great City Schools, which is an advocacy group for urban districts, um, says that 60% of its districts, the per-pupil spending in 60% of its districts is higher than the state average in which the districts are located. I don't think funding is the basic problem. Now, it is true, as you suggested at the outset of your question, and as I acknowledged, that uh, differences in socioeconomic status um, uh, on the part of families plays a role in student performance. As I said, I think it counts for about a third of the gap. And the best work on that is probably Meredith Phillips' work um, in a um, compilation of essays um, by a variety of authors in uh, Christopher Jenks and Meredith Phillips, the um, black-white test score gap. Was, uh, um, for non-social scientists, only the introduction is really very accessible. But anyway, um, the... Um, so socioeconomic status makes a difference, but, you know, if your question implied that we can't educate the kids until we can eliminate poverty in America. I mean, I had a question the other day at the Harvard Ed School where a, some, a student of Gary Orfield said, um, well, as long as we have poor housing in central cities, uh, it's impossible to uh, do anything about education. Well, I have a very simple answer to that. It's the title of our book, No Excuses. Educate the kids that walk through the door of the school. That is the obligation of the school. There are kids who come to the KIPP Academy, to North Star, to Amistad in New Haven, to whatever school you want to name that is doing really well with inner city schools, with inner city kids. There are kids who sleep on a different, in a different place every night who have no real home whose whole family structure is a total nightmare, who have nothing going for them in life. Um, I mean, the deck is so horribly stacked against achievement. The school, nevertheless, feels an obligation to teach the kids and does so. And I want every American school 
to look at kids with no excuses, no shrugging of shoulders, no, well, you ought to see. I hear this from teachers a lot. Well, you ought to see the kids that we get. No, no, teach them. Uh, there was a, another student question, and then we're going to have open the floor for everybody. Yeah, you, sir. I'm not a student. I'm a history teacher at Princeton High School. I'm Fine, go right ahead. <laughs> I'm sure you're wonderful. There are lots of wonderful teachers. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah, and obviously um, Princeton is a school that uh, you're there tutoring kids at 10 o'clock at night. I, I, I can't tell you how many schools I see in which teachers are just punching a clock in and out, uh, but they're not Princeton. Um, look, I, I, I think I said this before, and I'll reiterate it. Uh, and by the way, the Latino kids are watching much, much less t television than the African-American. Big, big um, difference there. Latino kids, much uh, pattern, television watching patterns much closer to the, uh, those of whites. But I, I'm about to reiterate a point I said before. I don't know the answer, and I don't think anybody else does either. Um, or so far, nobody else does either, even though a lot of people are working on it. Um, uh, you know, there are some questions that social scientists, with all their fancy regression analyses and everything, uh, can't get their arms around. They don't know the answer. Now, I'm hoping that the people who are studying, there's now a, I can't even remember the name of the project, maybe you know it, it's a, it's a consortium of suburban schools with uh, that are looking at the racial gap. Um, Shaker Heights is one of them, Scarsdale is one of them, new, um, uh, pardon me? Princeton is part of it. Minority student, thank you. Um, I mean, I hope they'll come up with some answers. As I said, I 
I don't have them. I didn't look at those schools. There are limits to this book. That's one of the limits. We really concentrated on the central city question, and I think the suburban question is a different one, and it's a different book, and I hope some of the people who are who are um, studying, uh, like Ron Ferguson, will eventually you know, come out with a book that, that illuminates that question. But I, I'm very impressed with how much Steve and I do not know. And I was rereading the other day our chapter in, in the middle section of the book. There's a, the section is called Culture Matters, and there's a chapter, Blacks, Hispanics, Asians. Um, actually, not in that order, but in any case, I was rereading the chapter on, on black student achievement and the question of culture. And I was very impressed with how thin it was. I mean, we know some things like the television watching. We know the correlations between um, uh, very young mothers, low birth weight, um, and so forth. But boy, there's so much we don't know. And the what we tried to do in this book was not because, I mean, we didn't have the chutzpah to, to imagine we could really answer uh, the questions that arise around this topic. What we tried to do above all was to lay out the problem and to, and to create, attempt to create a sense of outrage because this is a problem that we've known about for a long time America has known about for a long time and has been swept under the rug. In our previous book, which came out in 1997, we had a chapter, I think an unsatisfactory chapter, which is why we went on to write this book, on uh, the racial gap. And we were really the first people to say out loud, we've got a problem and nobody is being is talking about it. So our main goal was to draw a picture, um, provide some answers very tentatively, but, boy, a lot of questions we can't answer, and that's one of them. But part of the teacher's question, we raised the question of um, uh, family structure, intact families or single mothers, I think you, you meant. What, about, what do we know about father absence? Has, has anyone tried to do yeah, and we, an analysis of fa the relationship of father absence? I, uh, yeah, I wish NAEP asked family structure questions. It doesn't. And um, so we've got socioeconomic data, but we do not have family structure data. Um, uh, though, yes, as I said, uh, there is some social science literature on the relationship between academic achievement and single-parent households. Okay, floor is generally open. Yes, you, uh, sir. Uh, it's just a little comment. Uh, I'll repeat it. Uh, one has
Okay, just so people will hear, it's really a follow-up to the last two questions, and it's about the relationship of parents' educational achievement or educational level to the, to the gap. Yeah, unfortunately, when you control for parental education, I mean, again, it makes a difference, but it just doesn't, um, it doesn't, that is one of the socioeconomic factors, and it doesn't begin to explain the gap. But there's a but that follows. I'm back, I'm going to go back to Shaker Heights a minute. I think a reason, one possible guess about what's going on in Shaker Heights, or part of what's going on in Shaker Heights, is that a lot of the black families, I mean, when you say middle class, you're obviously talking about a huge income um, spectrum, and you're also talking about a, a spectrum in terms of family wealth and family education. And I think one of the things that might be going on in Shaker Heights is that the black families there are first-generation middle class and that, and first generation college educated. And that we may see real change over time. I would like to think that as the next generation, um, comes along, the kids of the students today where, um, if those students are more you know, firmly rooted, as it were, in, in America's middle class. So I think that's an open question. I, but at the moment, um, the numbers are very bad when you compare middle-income black um, kids, uh, kids from middle-income black families and whites from low-income black families, the the whites are still doing much better nationally. Abby, if I can quickly ask a question myself. Uh, there are a number of parochial schools in cities around the country that were in areas that were once Polish or Irish and are now largely uh, minority and, and even largely black where uh, the schools are teaching largely non-Catholic, I'm assuming Protestant kids. What do we know about those schools? Or do they tend to be more successful? Yeah, they do. And, um, I mean, it's another topic that we, d we didn't take up in this schools. The whole, um, the whole parochial school story, the data on parochial schools, which look, looks very, look very good. Um, it, uh, I mean, Paul Peterson at Harvard is the person to talk to about that. We just left that topic because we thought, uh, you know, this could keep on forever. Um, but it's interesting that a lot of the char in fact, all of the charter schools that I came to so like and spent so much time around, they all model themselves on parochial education, even though, even though the directors of them are not, are not Catholic and have never been part of parochial school education. I can't think of a single one of the directors who's Catholic himself or herself. Um, but, you know, the parochial schools, look, it's the same formula. That's, the, that's you know, a, a relentless focus on the fundamentals, uh, a bread and butter education, an enormous order in the school, sense of uh, communicating the value of self-discipline, um, working hard work. Yeah. Professor McElroy?
70s and 80s, actually, yeah. All right, 70s and 80s. Could you comment on what you think caused that progress and why it was reversed? Well, we should have expected progress. I mean, 1970, you know, most black students were in the South um, until... Well, I mean, you've still got a huge concentration. I think it's, again, you've got a majority in the South. But in any case, I mean, 1970, in the, in the Deep South, schools just began to be desegregated around 1970. It's 1968 that the Supreme Court puts down its foot in the Green decision and says, we want to see integrated schools, white and black kids sitting neck in the same classroom, not with all deliberate speed anymore. This is, after all, 14 years after Brown, but tomorrow, and then with Swan in 71, kids, uh, the beginning of busing in order to create racially, some racial balance in the, in the Deep South. So, you know, between 1970, when huge numbers of black kids were still in um, woefully inferior uh, segregated schools. And by the way, the North wasn't much better. Um, uh, there's always this huge distinction made between the Jim Crow South and the North. The North wasn't, wasn't that different. Um, um, you should have seen progress, and we should have seen continuing progress. You had a lot of progress between 1970 one, when the NAEP data uh, first became available in 1988. And had the trends of those years continued, the racial gap would be closed today, uh, and, but instead they didn't continue. But that's the, ex you know, that's what I would have expected. The, the question, the surprise is the fact that the progress ground to a halt and again, there are a lot of theories out there, but no good answer as to why. Um, um, one possible, I mean, I'll tell you some of the theories that have been floated. I have no idea what, how to weigh their worth. Um, uh, a critical Kind of a critical tipping point reached in terms of single parent households in, in the black community, um, widespread use of crack cocaine, rap music. I mean, there, you know, uh, uh, there are a whole bunch of theories out there. Um, I don't know. I don't think it, nobody else does either. Why did it change around? No, 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 that's incorrect. It had slipped since 19, uh, in 1988, the, the um, performance of the average black students started to go south. But no, we're not back to 71 when, when NAEP first became available. It's not that bad. Professor Vitterini, was your hand up? I don't remember my last book, Jeff. <laughs> Uh, they're now 32 KIPP academies, by the way. Which uh, we come away with the same feeling. Um, but it seemed like 
at it in terms of the history of If we just look back to the 80s, which a gentleman brought up, um, people like Ronald tried to refocus the debate from a debate about school integration to a debate on educational outcomes. And in some ways, it was a response to Coleman, who at that time said, much of this is done by families. And he wanted to get the conversation back to, let's focus on schools and what we can do to make them better. And as I hear you talk about your cultural explanation uh, and the response to it from some of the students in the audience, one could come away from this thinking that maybe this, this is, certainly this is a bigger issue than what happens in school. And what can, one could conclude, with this, concluded that it's really not something that, that can be fixed by education. The things that Rodman and others were trying to get away from, because it was an excuse to give up on Well, wait a minute. Why is that going back to American black and white? It isn't really. You're talking about no excuses. Oh, I thought when I said I don't remember my my last, but I thought you you were going to get me back to American black and white. Um, um, It is precisely because. This is such a huge job with the most disadvantaged kids that I'm saying that the good schools, the best schools, define the job of education in very large terms. And one of the reasons that the KIPP academies and lots and other schools that we uh, celebrate keep their kids for such long hours every day and for part of the summer and for Saturday mornings as well. So long days, long weeks, long years is because that's the kind of time it takes when you're dealing with the most disadvantaged kids, the have-nots of America, and because... I mean, there is another agenda here, which is they don't want them going home and hanging out with the neighborhood peer gr groups. Um, so they not only keep them long days, they send them home with homework. So they can't hang out, they can't watch television very much, and there aren't any excuses for not coming with your homework done. And if you don't come with your homework done, you stay what are called Wall Street hours. That is the hours that Wall Street attorneys keep, uh, which means you go home at midnight. Now, I mean, I think the problem is not the one that you identify. Or it's, it's I mean, I think these schools show that it can be done. But of such schools can we possibly have? It, they depend upon the most extraordinary dedication of very talented teachers who see teaching as a calling. 
The KIPP teachers have their cell phones on 24 hours a day so the kids can reach them about anything. That's not true of a lot of the other schools we saw that are very good. Um, but there is a level of commitment and a level of academic expertise. Most of these teachers do not have education degrees. They have bachelor's degrees from good schools where they got a, an education from a faculty of arts and science, not an ed degree. They have a BA or a BS. Um, now, I think the real question is, how on earth are we going to find, how are we going to structure the profession of the education and get over the political hurdles of doing so, so that a... That, so that young people who are, who have a sense of calling, a sense of idealism, and who are academically skilled are attracted to the profession. And I don't know about you, I mean, Joe, you know a lot more about education than I do. You've been in this business longer than I have. I wandered into education, um, working on, you know, voting rights and, and all sorts of other, um, subjects. But, um, uh, I've just, I've lost my, my train of thought there, but it was going to be something about how to get, uh, the, the, the teacher, the whole profession turned around here. Um, and, I, you know, I mean, and oh, oh, I know what I was going to say. You know, you know more than I do. Um, I defer to you, but it does seem to me on this matter, but it does seem to me, if I think of the um, young people that, if I think of my own children who are now in their late 30s um, and think of their classmates, almost none of them went into, their college classmates, almost none of them went into teaching. But a lot of them had no idea what they wanted to do when they graduated from a very good college. Um, they would have been willing to teach for a few years. It would have been, you know, and, I mean, tell me if I'm wrong. I understand that the first year is rough, but what if you got out of Princeton graduates, let's say four or five years of teaching? Uh, wouldn't you be ahead? Absolutely was the answer. Okay, we're, we're going to uh, have time, I think, just for one more question before we retire for informal discussion at the reception out there. And I see a whole lot of hands up, but, but this lady's has been up, I think, pretty long. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna give to give her the last question. I'm waiting for a really <laughs> hostile question. I haven't gotten one yet. <laughs>
Yeah. Well, you're absolutely right. I, I never forget. Um, I knew Al Shanker. Um, I, he wasn't one of my closest friends, but I knew him fairly well. And he once said to me, he once said to me, we were talking about the discipline problem, and he said, you know, um, we were talking about an inner, a particular inner city school. He said, those kids can't read a street sign. They can't read the newspaper but they know when to call their lawyer if we try, if we try to impose discipline. Um, I think the interesting question is when and why did, and maybe Joe already knows the answer to this, did discipline fall apart in American schools as, and is it part of the legacy of the 1960s and so forth? Um, uh, it's just a terrifically interesting question, but it's true, the discipline problems are true in the suburbs too, as well, and it's not a racial uh, picture. It's true of white kids in the suburbs, often out of control. The inner city schools are worse. Um, the, I mean, and, and we're back here to the culture of a school and to the culture that is, I, I think, uh, has to be imposed from the top and, and into which teachers, uh, that teachers have to buy into. I mean, as far as I'm concerned, it is just outrageous that I, that you walk into schools and you wonder who's running the schools, the kids or the adults? And the answer is perfectly clear that it's the kids running the schools. Um, Class size, I mean, you a, a wonderful friend of mine who made quite a bit of money in um, a high-tech industry and decided he had a Ph.D. in mathematics from MIT, and um, he decided uh, to stop working. He didn't need to earn any more money in his 50s and to volunteer to teach math in um, Boston high schools. And he gave up after three years because of the discipline problems and because of the fact that he couldn't get any of the authorities in the school to work with him on the discipline problems. I mean, you walk into these schools and kids are just, you know, they're in and out of classes, they're hall walkers, they're, some of them don't come to school to go to classes, they come to see their friends, things, chaos. I don't think class size is the problem. I think um, uh, classroom management is the problem. Um, interestingly enough, the KIPP Academy, I took, I hate to go back, keep going back to KIPP, but it happens to be a school that I've spent so much time at, I've lost track um, of the days by now. Um, I, I took a very brave principal I'm down from Boston to see uh, South Bronx's KIPP one day. Um, we drove down together, and he was brave because he was running a K-8 school in Boston, and he wasn't doing very well with it. And um, he, I said, let me show you a school, a middle school. And he said, okay, which is, was extraordinary. And 
the first class we went, where we watched was a math class, and he looks at me after about 10 minutes, and he said, I can't believe what I'm looking at. There are 45 kids in this classroom, and every one of them is learning. Every one of them is paying attention. Classroom management. And a, a charismatic teacher. Um, but, I mean, again, no excuses for that. I mean, let's go back to the suburbs for a minute. I remember, I'll never forget the day my daughter borrowed, I live in a Tony suburb, Lexington, Massachusetts. Um, uh, my daughter borrowed my bicycle to go back to school. She had forgotten something and she took my bike to go back to school. And she, collects whatever she forgot. She walks. It's five minutes later. She walks out, and a bunch of guys are hacking my bike to bits with sledgehammers. It turned out three of the teachers saw this, walked by, did nothing. We confronted the principal and the teachers who said, Oh, well, those were three boys that were just turned down by the Marines, and they were feeling really badly. Now, how did we get to the point in American education where anybody can give that kind of answer? I don't know the answer to that question. Joe Vitteretti probably has a bet. <laughs> it does. It's a good thing the Marines turned them down. <laughs> Well, we are going to continue uh, the discussion informally uh, at a reception to which you are all invited. Uh, I've been teaching at Princeton now for uh, 19 years. I don't know if I do it well, but I do it because of the inspiration of my teachers. I had wonderful uh, teachers. But in my 19 years of Princeton, very few of my own students have chosen teaching as a profession, either at the high school or middle school or elementary level, or for that matter, college teaching, and it is something that, uh, that I wish we would do better here at Princeton. I guess if we were more inspiring as teachers, perhaps uh, more of our students would. But last year, one of my very best students uh, came to see me about a letter of recommendation. A terrific kid. The world was his oyster. He could have gone on to Harvard Law School or to Wall Street and made a fortune or whatever, and he came for the recommendation. I assumed it was going to be a law school recommendation. I write dozens of them every year, but, but he came in and he, his recommendation was to a school where he was uh, applying to be a teacher. And that's, I could have kissed him. It was, <laughs> it was just wonderful to see a kid who really, you know, didn't go for the prestige and the money and, and all that, but, but, but into teaching. And, it, and at least we at Princeton should, I think, try to do a little better job of inspiring our students well, in that direction. But the question is, where, what will that student be doing five years from now? They're going to get five years out of them, though. That's, if they get they'll, five they'll get five years of a terrific, terrific That's good. Kid. But we tell a story in the book of a uh, SUMA graduate from Williams who tried to get a job in public schools right after graduating in, New in Newark and Trenton and so forth, places that are desperate for good um, Teacher. teachers. They wouldn't even interview them. Well, fortunately, my kid did a little better than that. Then. <laughs> Might have been my great recommendation. <laughs> but that's something I, I hope we'll go more of. Let me, before we... Um, before I invite you to, uh, to join us at the reception, just say that our own Joyce Malcolm, a very distinguished uh, scholar who's visiting with us uh, in the Madison program this year, will be giving uh, a paper uh, at 12.15 on Wednesday of this week, Wednesday at 12.15 in Bobst on uh, judicial review, 
on the power of the judiciary. And uh, there will be a light lunch served, and everybody is invited. 12.15 in Bobst Hall, which is on Prospect Avenue. Professor Joyce Malcolm. Thank you, uh, Abigail Thurston.